0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with me, your host, Zara Tangora.
3: And Bobby Conforto, your mom.
2: Bobby Conforto, who was giggling because I was just being very silly before we were recording this intro um, today on the show. We have an amazing guest, Iris Ruth Pastor, who joins us to talk about her forty-five year long struggle with bulimia, and uh, I loved chatting with Iris. It was such a lovely conversation. It was just, it was great.
3: Really was she? She really shared um, so much experience of having had this really difficult journey. And I think she did it succinctly and well, and I think the you know listeners will really understand more about what this really devastating um, addiction is like for
2: yeah so Bobby Passover is coming up next weekend, and we mentioned in the end of this episode about um the meal we want to share, and I was like, do you eat mothballs balls for Passover? I just want to mention I am." in the middle of a my mi- ending one migraine and potentially beginning another so i forgot that you eat pa- matz balls for passover but i know that you do and i love matz balls know. and uh i'm you know we're not very religious people or i should say we're not religious at all but we did grow up with you know jewish heritage and we love jewish mm-hmm. foods and so yes. i just wanted to say i'm really looking forward to passover foods that i'm going to make
3: and for making myself. a matzo ball lasagna
2: Yes, I'm, we're doing a collaboration with Shelsky's. It's a matzo ball lasagna. It's just matzo, dry matzo balls between layers of dry pasta. So get ready, people. It's going to be amazing. Well,
3: it would be fun to have a, a, an ethnic meal together. I consider it that it's more cultural and ethnic. You know, both of us have a view of spirituality but not of religion. But um, I know I, I grew up with um, deep roots because my mom actually had an orthodox background so I have deep roots into the cultural and um, ethnic uh, aspects of food. Mm.
2: Yeah, I really love um, some of the traditional Jewish foods and definitely traditional Passover foods. We talked about brisket earlier, sweet and sour brisket. Love stuffed cabbage. Love matzball soup. Kugel. Passover is about unleavened.
4: Things. Yes,
3: correct. Yep. All and I remember grandma bread. eating, loved matzah. Grandma loved, loved, almost like burnt matzah. With butter on it is one of the best things in the whole world. I can
2: eat it with butter. I'm gonna have some right now. I can't wait. Oh,
3: good. Oh, I'm coming to Brooklyn to get some. All right, you know what's
2: really good? Matzah with um, tuna fish on it. Now let's talk about all our weird snacks that we like.
3: And of course, there's matzah bry, which I remember growing up having that um, for breakfast, where you mix it with uh, eggs, almost like French toast that you make. Matza, Matza, very delicious.
2: Love it, and cinnamon sugar on top. Okay. Well, guys, I really hope that you enjoy, um, if you celebrate Passover, or if you're just in it for the delicious food, or if you're in it for the religious aspects, I hope that everyone has a lovely Passover, because you will. it will be going on as this episode airs, and that you enjoy our episode with the lovely, sweet, wonderful, just, I just, just got such a great vibe from Iris she had such a wonderful energy to her it was really really a beautiful
3: nice. smile I wish you could all see her smile
2: she's just a wonderful human it was really nice to connect with her yes. so thank you so much Iris and we can't wait to come up to New York and we can hang out as we talked about in the episode that's how we feel about all our all our guests we love them all so much and uh have a great week you guys and take care of yourselves and each other bye here today with our guest iris ruth pastor iris hello where are you joining us from
4: uh sunny tampa florida
2: oh my gosh as we were kind of chatting about before the show it's not quite it's mildly sunny today here in new york but definitely not warm and we are very jealous of you (laughs) but we're in the
4: summer when it's unbearably hot so that is true we're enjoying the march gorgeous weather what can i say
2: Oh, good. So, um, Iris, what have you been cooking lately? I mean, we're about a year into pandemic at this point, and I feel like some people are getting fatigued with cooking. Some people are still really into it. What, what have you been making? What's been going on in your kitchen lately?
4: When the pandemic first started, I went on a soup-making binge and made all different kinds of soup, vegetable soup, pea soup. I made hamburger and potato soup and froze them all. Ooh. That was the good part. Then when I went away, my freezer went out. So all, oh, the, no. all the soups that I had frozen thawed and then re um, refroze, which made them unedible. So oh. that was very disappointing. So my newest thing now is smoothies. And I have this smoothie recipe that I made up that I think is delicious and everybody else thinks is disgusting. But Okay, what is it? (laughs) Tell us. Okay, so what it is, is it's a half a cup of cottage cheese. It's a scoop of protein powder. I put in a couple of shakes of ground cinnamon and a mostly thawed banana that has been frozen. And I put it in my Nutribullet. And honestly, it tastes like ice cream. And everybody I tell it to goes, that's the grossest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Oh, no, we've
2: heard, definitely heard grosser things. I
4: mean, that
2: sounds, (laughs) I think that sounds nourishing. It It sounds delicious,
3: but you have to like it. That's the important thing. I
4: love it. I have it every morning. And I do sometimes do a variation like using raspberries or blackberries or strawberries. But for some reason, the banana is the most wonderful thing to me. So I just stick with that.
2: Yeah, a banana is one of those kind of really perfunctory, but like very useful fruits, right? You know, maybe it's nobody's favorite fruit because of you don't crave it, but it's. I mean, maybe some people, but it. You know, it's not like a peach or a pineapple or something, but it is. It really gets the job done when, <laughs> when you need it.
4: Sure, it's fully ripe. That I found yes. is very important. You can't. At least for me, I like them almost when they're rotten because then the taste is so much richer. So I think that's a consideration also.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Bobby, you know all about the soup, soup craze. Bobby is a soup, uh, a soup soupaholic, soupaholic. <laughs> soupaholic. Yes. You've it's a great a t- way
3: to eat food. You it know, is- it, yeah. Having had intestinal issues, most of my adult life, I find that soup is just an easy way to take in a lot of nutrients and I make sure that I put every type of nutrient in it. And then it's an easy form of digestion.
4: Sure. The house I like soup. It smells soups. so good. The house smells so good you're true. cooking soup. My grandmother was an Eastern European Jewish woman that lived in the Bronx, and she made soup all the time when I was growing up. And then I was fortunate enough to marry a man whose mother made also made homemade soups. And my kids call that real food, and it is real food. It's nice. There's something. <laughs> so down home and wonderful about, about cooking from scratch, a big pot of soup.
2: Totally. So Iris, you mentioned your grandma. So did you learn to cook from, from grandma? I know that like your your relationship with your grandma, as you mentioned before we recorded this episode when we were chatting, you talked about how your grandmother was a pretty big influence in your life. Was she uh, influential in helping you kind of establish a relationship with food?
4: Yes, but probably not. It, it turned out not in the healthiest way. She died when I was seven. Mm. But up until the time that she passed away, I would watch her make vegetable soup and grind the meat with the meat grinder to make meat blends mm. and that type of thing. And I, I always equated food with love until about the time I reached puberty. And that's when food became my enemy because it 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 was helping me Develop and put on weight that I didn't want, so I went from having a very strong nurturing concept of food to food's my enemy, and that was the seed mm. for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, was there something else that you can identify, kind of during that that time, aside from puberty? Was it was there something else that was going on? Do, do you think that was reinforcing that feeling of you know having? Having food be the enemy or
4: oh absolutely it was spelled b-o-y-s boys and my (laughs) my hormones were raging at that point i developed very early and what i realized was that if i continued to stay slim which is kind of difficult anyway when you're going through changes in your body during that period I would get a lot of attention from boys. And if I mm-hmm. wasn't slim and trim, they no longer looked at me. And this was the late 50s, early 60s when girls didn't have the range of choices they have now. It was pretty well focused on boy and girl relationships. And I see with my grandchildren who are teenagers now, young teenagers, they're not really focused on the opposite sex the way that we were during those times. Mm-hmm. So that was why I think food became something that I feared because eating too much of it was going to turn off the boys and make me feel very ordinary. And the last thing I wanted to do was feel ordinary.
2: Right. And I also think like when we think back to that time and um is that I think if we take that a step further aside from just like you know wanting male attention I think like there is the idea during that time as you know a cisgendered straight woman that you were meant to marry and that would be security because there weren't as many, you know what I mean, options for women or uh, any other kind of people other than straight white men to have kind of financial stability and career stability. And, you know, you had to kind of attach yourself to the ma- the male gaze to feel like you had stability. Is there a truth to that? <laughs>
4: Is there truth to that? (laughs) A lot of truth to that, yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's very difficult for young women now to identify with how strongly we bought into that, but we really did. Mm. It was who are you going to marry? When are you going to get married? My mother actually got married at seventeen, had me at twenty. Wow! You know that was my role model, and it so my looks. I mean, that's what I was relying on and to develop my mind and my talent and resources simply wasn't on my radar screen the way it was later in life.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it can be like a pretty, I mean, we've talked to, you know, several people on this show who have struggled with eating disorders as young people. and you know, I, I know it can be kind of an alienating experience because, you know, you're young and you're a teen and you're supposed to be in some way having fun and this is like a carefree time in your life and what a big mm-hmm. care to carry, a big burden and, uh, you know, just pain to carry having to constantly think about weight and eating and did you feel that?
4: You know, I I felt that, but this the idea that my eating disorder persisted for 45 years. Mm-hmm. The, the shame and the humiliation and the feeling inauthentic was so strong in me. I think it actually grew stronger as I got older because I kept saying, what's wrong with me? What What is wrong mm-hmm. with me? I'm a grown woman. I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not a sophomore in college. And the reasons that, that I had started binging and purging were pretty classic for an eating disorder um, like bulimia. And that was, I was away from home for the first time. My boyfriend had just broken up with me. I'd like to say I broke up with him, but he broke up with me. I had no idea what my my major was going to be. I wasn't really in tune with my my values and my strengths. I was very unformed. And and I also didn't know anybody at this new university. I was a transfer student. so. That was my way of taking control and being able to eat all these wonderful comfort foods, eat like a pig, but not gain weight and still be able to attract a boyfriend. Yes. So that, wow. that was the way I felt then. But as I matured, I think the shame and humiliation was even worse because I'm yes. a grown woman. I mean, this is ridiculous. So, that's so what I
3: hear is that it started from lacking of self-acceptance and that the more you did it, the more you didn't accept yourself because there was so much shame and humiliation involved.
4: And, and also, I, Bobby, I lacked self-esteem. I mean, it's hard to feel mm-hmm. good about yourself, even though outwardly I got married. Um, I ended up getting divorced. I remarried. I had a very solid marriage. I gave birth to five kids. I I appeared to be coping beautifully. I had the perfect life, which made it even worse because I had this shameful secret. And, and so it, it just, there was so much separation between the reality of what was going on on the inside of me and how I was appearing outwardly. And that, that caused a a lot of misery.
3: That's a very good way of putting it. You know, I think it was the, um, um, the Buddha that said that happiness is when what we feel inside matches what we are outside. And what you're saying is there was discordant. It wasn't the same, you know, the the world you appeared to be happy and content and inside you, you felt so tortured that must've been so hard for 45 years. That's a long time to have that. What do you think some of the losses were that you experienced because you had an eating disorder for 45 years?
4: I I think it was mainly the inner turmoil of it because I was doing motivational speaking. I had been writing a column for all those years and I would talk about everything and I would be very personal in my column, but I wouldn't talk about that. So I think Mm -hmm. that it didn't really hold me back. It didn't really hold me back, but I think it caused a lot of inner angst. That had I hadn't had it, I would have been more peaceful.
2: Mm. I think we also don't talk often enough about the grief of having a secret. Yes. You know what I mean? Because having a secret is, uh, again alienating and it's one of those kind of things that makes us feel like i don't know if there's a worse feeling than feeling like hey, nobody understands me or nobody can relate i don't it's it's feeling alone right like feeling that's scary and it's weird and i think having a secret that nobody knows is one of the most alienating, like I'm all alone in this world kind of feelings. And, uh, you know, I know anytime that I've had a secret, I've had that burden. And even just going through times where you feel maybe alienated from friends and family, like I know it's such a it's such a scary feeling and such a weird feeling. And I can't imagine the grief of carrying a secret like that for 45 years.
4: I think that took its toll. The feeling of no one understands this i'm i'm in this alone when i've talked to other people that have exposed their eating disorders that especially bulimia because bulimia you can't tell anorexia you can usually tell when somebody's anorexic but Mm -hmm. somebody said to me after i published my book they said well like send me a picture of when you were bulimic it was like hello (laughs) the same that was the point you couldn't tell But so there was one burden of feeling alone and isolated and many people with bulimia had that feeling. And so when you let your secret out, you think you're going to be relieved, but actually it causes a lot of pain and a lot of like, Mm. people aren't real anxious to hear about that and they don't know exactly what to say and how to react to it. And then you have the family who (laughs) didn't know about it and you're blasting it all over. So it's not it's not a done deal when you come out with your secret. You have to be prepared to meet with indifference and resistance and defensiveness, a lot of things. Mm. It's not just an instant relief. You have to come to terms with a lot of things when you when you divulge your secret. Mm. Now when
3: you came out with your secret, did you then begin a process of trying to heal the eating disorder?
4: No. What I did, Buffy, uh-huh. was actually the opposite. I never told anybody till I was well on the way to recovery. So uh-huh. I decided it was in 2012, Valentine's Day. I was the last time I binged and purged. And I said, I, I just can't keep doing this to my body. And... Then I entered a treatment center. It was right before I turned, <clears throat> excuse me. It was right before I turned 65, and the reason I did it then is because the, the eating disorder treatment center did not take Medicare, and I knew I was going on Medicare. So I went to this eating disorder treatment center. I did a three month outpatient program, but I had stopped binging right before that, but didn't know if I could sustain it. So that's when this all, you know, the healing process began. I didn't actually start telling people, maybe till a year or two afterwards. Mm. I couldn't do it while I was still in the throes of the bulimia. It it just didn't feel comfortable to me. I had to feel that I was past it, at least not that I was going to go back to it every day before I started coming out and revealing what my history had been.
3: Yeah. Iris, can you tell us a little bit more about the healing process? You know, I I know from experience that that often eating disorders, uh, you give them a name called Ed, you know, which is, means that you have a relationship oh, yes. with Ed. Oh
4: yes. So can you I
3: tell us a little bit more
4: about that? I can. My book talks about Ed as as a male figure, uh, not not erectile dysfunction eating disorder. <laughs> and I also actually. Have a musical that I'm working on now with Ed as a character, and I wrote, wow. yes, and I wrote a serious play before that about Ed as a character. So, so you're absolutely right. Ed, Ed is a force to be reckoned with, and I th- I think in my case, it it definitely what what scared me the most about Ed and what showed me how powerful he was is that my First husband who I met in college when I was binging and purging knew that I was binging and purging. This was the sixties. He didn't, he and I had no name for it. No one had a name for it. He just thought it was quirky. And he asked me one day to stop. I had, I had eaten a great big meal. I had steak and potatoes and onion rings and pecan pie and a Coke. And then I just proceeded to go in the bathroom and lock the door and I was going to throw up. And he says to me, you've got to stop doing this. If you don't stop, I'm leaving, okay? And do you know what I Mm -hmm. said? See ya, goodbye. And that moment I chose Ed and that was such a defining minute for me because I realized the power that Ed had over me. And my, my marriage did break up. It didn't break up because of Ed. But that stayed with me. And when I got married to my second husband, and we've been married almost 45 years, I was so terrified that I couldn't share this with him. Because if he asked me to do it, I I knew I wouldn't be able to give Ed up. And I didn't want him to become part of my battle. So I kept him completely out of it.
3: Yes. You know, they say with any addiction that your main relationship is with the substance. So what you're saying is that was your marriage, that was your primary relationship, yes. with Ed.
2: And Bob. So inter- tell us,
3: tell us more about your healing.
2: Me. I actually want to just g- g- jump in very quickly and and say something, which is that you know you initially said that you started kind of uh, binging and purging as a means to attract like male attention, and then you know you got married, you had the you know quote male attention that maybe had been idealized as a young woman of finding a husband or whatever that, you know, I, I ideal was to you at the time. And then once you had the thing in which you had, you know, been binging and purging and had this eating disorder for in the first place, it, it wasn't actually the, I I just find that interesting that the thing that you had been doing it for actually wasn't even what you, wasn't as important as the as the disease, as Ed anymore.
4: Well, Ed became a vehicle for so much more than just attracting right. a male. And And basically, what I realized over the years is it was a way to cope, it was a way to relieve uh, anxiety and depression and stress. It was a way to manage my emotions and control my anger. So I, you know, I didn't have to face a lot of different things. I could be pretty. I could be a pretty good coper because I was binging and purging every night and getting all that stuff out of my system. So you're right. It it evolved from attracting a male to really a coping mechanism for managing my emotions. And it stayed that way. And, And you bring up a very good point because it served a function. That's why that habit or addiction or behavior, whatever you want to call it continued because it provided me something that I needed. And until I was able to find other substitutions for that, I couldn't give it up. And I had, and this is another thing I want to tell both of you. I've listened to a lot of people, a lot of women in midlife and beyond who had bulimia either early on throughout their life or intermittently. And one of the things that they said is that they had been in therapy, but never discussed it. And Mm. That is, that's very, that's very common. And it was exactly with me too. So I would go into therapy and talk about depression and stress and anger and all these things and learn from it, but I still continued to binge and purge. And I think one of the reasons I, when I decided to stop purging that I was able to, is that I had already absorbed so many good things from therapy that I was able to eradicate Ed because he no longer had that power over me. But I didn't really realize that fully. It took me a while to realize that the reasons I had binged and purged for so long no longer existed. And that-
3: And you built the better resources in the meantime.
4: Absolutely, Bobby, absolutely.
3: So tell and, us about some yes. of those resources. What are some of the resources that have helped you uh, deal with your emotions, okay. um, I think, manage
4: yourself? Well, writing was always an outlet for me. And so when I wrote my book, which was It's the Secret Life of the weight obsessed, of a Weight Obsessed Woman, that was very cathartic for me. But then I also mm. started doing things and taking pleasure and things that I, because Ed was my pleasure. So I didn't have to have any ancillary pleasures stupid Mm -hmm. things i started like taking a long hot shower i enjoyed that walking you know just walking in a rocking chair going going back to knitting which you know i always like to say knitting keeps me from unraveling but it's it's a very soothing and creative type of 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 a hobby so i i started finding enjoyment in other areas and it finally finally got back to doing some cooking but for years my cooking was very perfunctory because food was something I was fearful of. And I and I was mm. afraid to like if I baked a cake, I eat the whole batter and just throw it up. So it, you know, it was a gradual process back to not only cooking, but talking about food, looking for recipes, being experimental in what I wanted to eat. That only came years after I had I had overcome and ousted. Ed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, you know, such a, such a deep routine to break, right? Like we talk about trying to break habits and, and addictions and routines and, and the grooves in our brain are, are dug so deeply and things like that. And in addiction, well, it's like fear-based
3: because it's so fear-based. You know, what I gathered from some of the things I read about what you wrote was that, um, there was a, you feared food, like you said before, because if you would start to eat it, you'd be afraid you wouldn't be able to stop.
4: Yes. yes. Is that true? Yes, and I'll I'll tell you the other thing that really helped me. When I stopped binging and purging, I realized there were so many things I didn't know how to handle. One of them was portion control. I had no idea of portion control, because if you sat set a cake in front of me and I would just eat the whole thing, because then I'd go throw it up. So how did I know what was going to make me satisfied? So what I did, and a lot of times people in the eating community professionally don't like to hear this, but I went to Weight Watchers. And first of Mm -hmm. all, when I came out of treatment, I was heavier than I wanted to be. And I knew I wanted to take the weight off, but I also knew I had to understand when I was hungry and what filled me up. And I had no basis for that ever. So Weight Watchers taught me portion control. And it also helped me identify when I was hungry. I didn't even know when mm. I was hungry because it didn't matter when I was hungry. I ate whether I was hungry or not. So those were all uh, kind of little victories along the way that helped me get back to a more normalized pattern of eating. So. I I learned when I was hungry, how much it would take for me to get full because I don't have that automatic thing in my head where you put a plate in front of me and I'll eat until I'm stuffed or I'll eat until I'm comfortably full. No, no, no. I would just eat the whole thing because I doesn't. So it was learned behavior. The other thing that I embraced, but not easily in the beginning was this whole intuitive eating theory, which is if you let your body kind of go naturally, it will tell you what it needs. <laughs> mm. The most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard of at first. Because, yes, of, wow. well, my body's telling me I want to eat eight Oreos, so I'm just going to go ahead and eat it. So that was mm. a very, very difficult concept for me to understand. And I, and I still mm. struggle with that.
3: You know what I'm hearing throughout this, Iris, is that if through your growing up, you didn't have a relationship with yourself that you have come to have a relationship with the self yeah that it was hard to be with yourself it was hard to know what the self what yourself needed it was hard to know what yourself was was healthy or unhealthy so is that true that with these um the hobbies you described are singular hobbies time with yourself being comfortable with yourself
4: I, yes, I think you totally hit it on the nose and I, I had no sense of self. And the interesting thing is because I wrote a column and I did speeches and different things like that. Other people had a sense of me,
0: but mm. I had a sense of
4: myself, which was really disconcerting, but Bobby, that, that really, I didn't have mm. that. And, and of course, the other part of that equation is once you get a sense of self, you want to treat that sense of self as compassionately as you treat your friends. With kindness and passion and empathy, which and that's, exactly. that's the other thing I consciously became aware of is like if my friend were going through this, what would I say to her? And that that was an eye opener. That was truly an epiphany to treat myself as nicely as I treated my friends and family. That's
3: Absolutely. very that's very powerful. That's Absolutely. the truth. Yeah.
4: Well, you know, so
2: something that I always kind of think is. Uh, that I always have a question about when I think or hear stories about people who have struggled with eating disorders is so many of us turn to food as a kind of comfort, right? You know, we associate it with warm feelings of holidays and celebration and all this stuff. So when food is so complicated, your relationship with food is so complicated and often so painful, what did you turn to other than food in these times of like, you know, to, to get joy, to get comfort? Where was your self-care and your kind of enjoyment of life coming from? Well,
4: this is kind of interesting. One of the things I did when I was in the three-month treatment program and it was outpatient is after the evening session, I would come home. and And at night, that was the scariest part for me because that's when I always binged and purged. So a couple of things I did, I changed where I watched television and where I sat. I went into an upstairs loft out of the kitchen family room area, but I turned my binging into binge watching and (laughs) became obsessed. And during that time, I had never watched Grey's Anatomy and I watched like seven seasons of Grey's Anatomy. But, But, and to this day, I tend to be a binge watcher, where if I'm going to watch something, I'll watch it in the evening for three hours. So it, I really replaced it with something that was probably as habitual.
3: But way. healthier, but much healthier.
4: Much healthier, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and the knitting. The knitting is you can't eat and knit at the same time. So I definitely... <laughs> Kept your hands I, busy. Yeah, I keep my hands busy. And I, I, do, I do purses and afghans and different things like that that wow. don't take real intricate kinds of stitches so I can do it while I'm watching. But that those things were very important to me. And what I also found is I had spent, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, I had spent so much time berating myself for mm-hmm. being out of control that when I was in control and I had this excess energy, I put it towards creating, I put it towards just, like, like the whole world is a sponge to me. And I'm constantly learning and doing and out there and exploring new things because I felt like I was had such an inner struggle for so many years. And I've Mm. heard other people say the same thing is that the time you take thinking and agonizing over what's wrong with me, why am I out of control? Why am I eating like a pig? Why can't I overcome this? When you do, it's so liberating.
3: Of course it is. There's hours and hours and hours of negative thinking about yourself, right? Yeah. And so now you're freed up. Yes,
4: absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Mm.
2: Well, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, uh, like life is scary when we think about it. Even, Even people who have a relatively uncomplicated life and then the more complications that come into it and, trauma and family issues and all kinds of stuff like it gets scary to think how little control we have and I think that most all of us try to find certain ways to feel like we have control and some people are workaholics and some people are alcoholics and some people are nervous and some people are bulimic and I think that it's important to remember that like life just is scary and we don't have control and so it's very normal to want to try to push up against that. And, you know, when we try to find ways to push up against it as young people, that's not always the right way. You know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're 16 years old and you're trying to find a way to get control of life. And that's such a time when you're, you know, coming into your own, it's such a transitional time. It's, you know, I think forgiveness to yourself and understanding that it's so, It's so reasonable to like allow something like this, you know what I mean? To fall into something like this. Like it's, it's unfortunate. And I feel so much for you and anyone else who's gone through an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. It's, but I think there's also an element of it when you can come to the other side to have compassion for yourself, because it is so hard to find ways to cope with just being a person, you know,
3: compassion instead of self-loathing.
4: Yeah. Yes. That was, that was a very big step for me. But, but the other thing, the sea change I went through is that I began to realize I was doing things for healthy reasons. In other words, it used to be focused so much more on my looks, like, oh, mm. I'm going to diet and lose weight, so I look good in my bathing suit or whatever. And, right. and as I matured and watched friends become ill with things that they couldn't control, right. I I became much more focused on doing things for the health benefits, rather than how I looked. And I, I think part of that also was, as I, as I grew and matured, I realized, especially, I think, being Jewish, played into this about how Judaism says that you, that your body is a sacred vessel. And here, I was abusing that. And that caused a tremendous amount of guilt in me. So the other the other side of it was when I stopped doing this, I felt renewed and, and much more spiritual. And that gave me kind of a serenity that I hadn't had before that, you know, I'm doing good things for my body. And and also the fact that I have grandchildren and is this the legacy I want to leave for them mm-hmm. that their grandmother died in a pool of vomit? And seriously, yeah. that was the new stuff. It was like all these things I've done, they have been good and creative and resourceful. And then this is what they're going to remember me for. That's not, that's not compassion. You,
3: you could have compassion for them, for your children and for your grandchildren, but you learn to have compassion for yourself. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the word serenity before. There's a reason why the serenity prayer is used in 12-step programs. You know, it is such a powerful thing, you know, telling us to notice the things, really notice the difference between the things we can control and the things we can't, because if we keep focusing on the things we can't control, we don't notice all the things that are right in front of us that we can't control. That's and right. generally, those are the internal things. We can't control others. We can't control what happens to us in life, but we can control, hopefully, our response to what happens
4: but the to down- us in But the downside was I wasn't controlling it. So yes, that was even right. adding.
3: To- yes, it didn't even work anyway. It- well, that's the problem with addictions. They cause more problems. Yes, we that- think that they're, like you said before, you thought it was trying to solve a problem. Yes. And like Zara pointed out, it was, as a young person, it was what you could think of. It was creative in a way it was when very, you were young. It was very- but then it stopped working and and the habit of it, it was so hard. It got into your brain chemistry and it was just hard to change you know, but how inspirational that you did change after all those years, because that's a long time to have an addiction. Can I ask another personal question? What impact did having bulimia for 45 years have on your body?
4: You know, it was interesting that you asked that, Bobby, because I had it down to a science. I would binge on things like ice cream, which came up very easily. And I would eat health, I mean, I binged and purged through every pregnancy but I took my vitamins and I ate healthy and it was only at night at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock that I mostly would eat, you know, half a gallon or whatever of ice cream and then just go throw it up. So I really did have minimal impact from that. It did impact mm. my teeth, mm-hmm. it impacted my teeth and I think mm. it changed my voice, I my voice is scratchy. But mm. when I decided I had to stop, when I was, Purging my stomach muscles were starting to contract, and that scared me. That scared the hell out of me. Other than that, I haven't, I, I really didn't suffer any ill effects. But I, but, you know, I only did it at specific times. <laughs> I ate healthy the rest. I mean, basically, ate healthy the rest of the time. Crazy. Yeah, you had
3: five kids. My goodness, you have five children. Yeah,
4: yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. So, so, but I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying, oh, you know, you can binge and purge, and you won't have any health issues. That's just of not course. true. But right, right. I, I, You know, I was conscious of those kinds of things, and I was conscious of eating very healthy. And if you eat ice cream and throw it up five minutes later, you know, chances are that what you ate for dinner is going to still stay down. So wow, yeah. wow. I was, wow, interesting. Iris, uh, we ask everybody the same question
2: who joins us on processing as we near the end of our chat together. But if you could have given yourself one piece of advice kind of at the beginning of this experience for you, knowing what you know now, having gone through it, what would that be?
4: i uh, um i think be your own best friend that's what mm. i think is most important be your own best friend because if you can't be there for yourself you can't be there for your family your friends your community you just can't and that's that's what i learned and women sometimes have a hard time with that but i think i told you this Sarah, that my whole template is preserving your bloom which is kind of a a, a yes. play off on my my name iris and what it means is using your talents and resources to be the best you can be, which is really self-care. So I'm. Yeah. Gr- that's it. Be your own best friend and good things mm-hmm. will happen. That's, very that's nice wonderful.
3: Days. We have one more uh, way that we close our, our, our processing. And that's what uh, coming to the processing table, if we were all right now to set prepare a meal together and we could sit down and enjoy it. And I think we should think about Eastern European foods because Zara and I also have that background. So if we could all make one of our favorite dishes that we wanted to share with each other, what would it be?
2: Bobby, do you want to start?
3: Um, sure. I mean, I guess I would have to say what I said before last week. I love chicken soup. I love to make it. I love the sweetness of it. One of my secrets is I put a little bit of sugar in it when I make it. A little bit of honey or sugar. And I also put sweet potatoes in it. I put a sweet Ooh. potato cut up as one of the vegetables. And it has just this sweetness and it. it's so warm. And I would make some matzo balls because I was watching a Bobby Flay um, showdown last night and they were making matzo balls. So I would make matzo balls too. And soup.
2: Passover is coming up. Oh Yes. No, there's, yes you don't do is. Passover yes, matzo is. balls, do you?
3: Yeah, you do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Of course. So what would you make, Iris.
4: I would say I would make brisket. There's, there's, something mm, about, yum. there's something about meat. I know, you know, it's not completely politically correct in these days, but they're to me like the smell of a brisket and the taste of it. And oh, such comfort food. I, I would say brisket.
3: And how? Just quickly, that. how do you make brisket? How do you make the so brisket? Where,
4: there's one, My grandmother didn't use this recipe, but someone else had given it to me, and you use a first cut kosher brisket but you you it, you, it makes sweet and, you make a sweet and sour and you use yes. coke and i'm not sure what the, what the rest of the ingredients are but one of them is actually regular coke and you
1: I wow. love that that's
4: fun <laughs> i think that's really fun i
2: like to put in my brisket ginger snaps ooh <laughs> ginger snaps
4: and i like is to put apricots
3: in burgundy ooh. and ginger snaps yeah
4: Oh, wait, I have one other thing that I've just discovered yes, a couple years ago, because my friend's son is a chef. Majol dates with blue uh-huh. cheese, with, oh, with crumbled blue cheese. Yum. Oh, my that
2: sounds delicious. That, <laughs> that will be our dessert.
3: And Zara, what are you going to make for this piece? Well, I was going
2: to bring dessert. I like that matzah crack, the stuff that you put the matzah, um, when you put the caramel, like... Um, it's kind of like toffee and then chocolate and sea salt, and it's like makes it like a little candy with matzah in the middle. It's delicious. Oh, Crackly Somebody matzah. made that for me once. Okay. Well, we delicious. have a great
3: processing table.
2: <laughs> yes. Amazing. Uh. Iris, it was so nice to connect with you. You have such a warmth, and you exude a natural warmth. You have this amazingly beautiful. Just aura around you and attitude and vibe. So it was just so wonderful to be in your company for this past forty five minutes, and um, we've been chatting for a while. And we're so happy to have finally gotten you on the show. It was really, really just so lovely. What a lovely Friday morning conversation to Thank have with you. you.
4: Thank you. I so appreciate it. And I just want you to know, I do get to Brooklyn in New York. So oh well, I would please love to is- get together with you at some point. That would be oh, so we'd fun. Love that. Oh my we gosh, would love that would it. be wonderful.
2: And then we could have this meal for real. Yeah, yeah and we could just spend some time. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story, and really, like, you know, it is so important to talk about just, you know, whether it's an eating disorder, any other kind of addiction, or anything. It just what we were talking about before. I think is really so central to the importance of sharing these kinds of stories is that it feels so lonely for people, and they can feel like, oh gosh, like. Why am I doing this or I'm I'm strange for doing this or I'll never be able to stop and we all only get this one bit of time on this planet you know what I mean and if we can kind of aid each other in being able to um, not feel so lonely in these times and with these with these issues I think it's really important you know, and yes. I think the grief that people can actually feel from ha- from struggling with an eating disorder is very real, and it's it's very uh, it's very painful. So thank you so much for being thank vulnerable you. and open and sharing about that. I know it's gonna help a lot of people.
4: My- and guys,
3: remember that um that um Iris wrote a book, and the book yes. is called The Secret Life of a Weight Obsessed Woman. Correct. And you also have some other, you have a podcast and you have, can you tell us just about that?
4: Yes. I put out a newsletter every Friday at three o'clock. I like to say before Shabbat and you can go to my (laughs) website and sign up, which is irisruthpastor.com. And yes, I do do podcasts and my book is available anywhere books are bought and sold. So that is definitely uh, something.
2: Awesome. Iris, you're amazing. Thank you so much. It was so great to meet you and connect with you, and we can't wait to see you again soon. Thank you, and enjoy the wonderful warm weather in Tampa.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing we realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning and healing. We appreciate our guests willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests and listeners experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing, processing, at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.